0: today, as we are in our series called People Like Us, I thought it'd be really fitting to talk about a woman who was in a lot of transition. And uh, her transition, it wasn't just a setting change, it was a transition that was filled with loss. And I think if we just talk about a bit of her life, um, she's going to show us that there is a good way to go through transition, and a not-so-good way. There is a a not-so-healthy way, and there's a better way, and I think we have a lot to learn from this woman. If you have a Bible, please turn it to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to start right at the beginning. We're not going to go through the whole story, but we are going to walk through this story a bit. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and names of their two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and Milan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the book of Ruth begins in a time when the judges ruled, and this time is described in the book of Judges, I think it's described best as moral anarchy, and uh, it, it talks about this being a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That line keeps on coming in the book of Judges. And so we have a character by the name of Naomi. She's married to Elimelech. They have two sons. There was a famine in the land, and the story begins with moral anarchy and famine. Where is the story going? Now, this Jewish family leaves Israel and goes to a nearby country by the name of Moab. Now, the original... Uh, Audience who would hear this story, they know a thing or two about Moab, and a good Jew would be like, Oh, that's not a good place, right? That's not good. Because if you look at the family tree of Moab and you contrast it to the family tree of Israel, they share, they're like distant cousins to each other, so they are connected. But if you look at the connection and the roots and you trace it down and you trace it down, what you see is an incestual relationship. Ugh, right? And so, actually, it's really interesting. If you take the name Moab, Mo means who, and Ab means father. So you put those together, and it's, who's your daddy? Did you know that there's a who's your daddy in the scripture? So the very name is Mocking. Like, who, who, who are you? Oh, I'm from the tribe of who's your daddy. <laughs> And actually, who is your daddy? It was grandpa. You know, it's... uh, Right? So the story begins, no righteousness, no food, and they're desperate in the land of who's your daddy. Elimelech dies in verse 3. And Naomi is left with two sons, and her sons marry Moabite women, and then the story goes from bad to worse, and then to even worse. Her two sons die. Now, Naomi is left having all the men in her life just gone in the same chapter of life. And back then, men, like, they meant more back then than they do now, right? Uh, Men meant family name and land ownership and inheritance and all the financial security and safety. It all depended on the men. So in one chapter of life, Naomi loses everything, her community, her provision, her retirement. She loses it all. Personal hurricane. Now, if you're reading the text and you're listening very closely, there is a whisper in the text. Actually, if you really listen closely and you're a good Jew who listened to it originally, it's actually more of a shout. But the whisper is this, where is God in all this? That's the question. Where is God in all of this? It's a shout, really. Where is God in all this? Where is God in all this? Now... I was telling you, like, like, good, if you're like the original hearer, it's, it's shouting at you. And why is that? Because it wasn't just felt, but if you look at the names in the story, there's a lot of symbolism here. So we're going to look at the names. The, the name meant much more than a name. It meant something to the story. Now, Bethlehem was house of bread. Let me hear you guys say house of bread. Now, get this one. This one's my favorite. Elimelech. I have trouble with that word. Elimelech. Is my God is King. Let me hear you guys say, "My God is King." Okay, let me hear you saying, "My my God, my God is King." Okay, now keep that in mind. The husband's name is My God is King. Naomi means pleasant. Malone means weak. Chilion means frail. All right, now check this out. Okay, I didn't make up these names, but that's what they mean, right? You are an original Hebrew audience. You, are, you know what the names mean. And this is... This is now hear the story from their eyes. In the days... I'm going from verse 1. In the days when the judge ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of... Who's your daddy? He and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man... <laughs> the name of the man was, My God is King. And the name of his wife... Was pleasant, and the names of the two sons were weak and frail. They went into the country of Who's Your Daddy and remained there. Now check this out, verse three. But my God is king, or actually, my God is king. The husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. Those two, those took Moabite wives, and both weak and frail died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, now do you hear it? Do you hear the where is, because when my God is king dies and all you got are weak and frail and they die too, you are here. Where is God? Where, where is he? Where is he? This message uh, is developed from a book written by Paul Miller and the book is called A Loving Life. And Paul Miller talks about this experience that believers have and it's a gap between hope and reality. When I graduated from college, I was wondering, what should I do with my life? And of course, when you you graduate, it's New Horizons, you're hopeful, right? So I at the time had a charismatic mentor. And he was very good with giving me prophetic words. And, um, and I was, you know, I, I, I loved receiving them. So one time I was on the phone and he had like a prophetic word for me. And keep in mind, uh, I just graduated. The horizon is really bright. And he says to me, your destiny, you should go and ask your mom. Because when you are in the womb, God told something about the person that you were to become. I was like, really? He's like, go go ask your mom. I'm like, oh, right, this is cool. And so I was really excited, and so I went home, and I had dinner with mom. I'm like, i going to ask her, going to ask her. And then we went for this walk, and in the middle of this walk, I'm walking with my mom. I'm like, mom, I was just wondering, like, you know, you know I'm looking for work and stuff, I was wondering when I was in the womb, did God ever tell you something about my destiny, like who I was going to become like like a like a vision or like a dream? And my mom goes, mm, no Maybe <laughs> oh not maybe not vision dream, but, but like, maybe like a word of scripture, like you're reading scripture, and all of a sudden there is someone and it just resonated with you, and you just feel like, maybe that was from God, you get like a word from mm, no." How about like a hope or like a feeling? Did you ever want something from this child? You know, she goes, no. Oh, oh, Enzu, no. I thought you were going to be a girl. <laughs> and I was sitting there like, I thought it was going to be a girl? I Okay, I guess I couldn't get that part right either, you know? Now, I got to say, I was really crushed. I was really crushed. I, I, I was expecting something else. I was expecting something big, something promising, you know. Uh, I just felt like, I guess God doesn't have much of a dream for me or much of a reality for me. Have you ever been in this place where there's a gap between hope and reality? You ever been there? Now, Paul Miller, in his book, he uh, has this chart where he sort of demonstrates what's going on. And so I want to try to demonstrate that for you. Okay, um, so here, here we go. Here's the chart. And uh, a lot of times in our lives, um, at the brink of something new, where there's new horizons, uh, we can't help but have hope. And sometimes maybe a lot of those times it's a God-given hope it's a dream that you have and you it just happens like the moment that you get married right You, you have high hopes for what the marriage can become or the moment that you take a pregnancy test and it's positive or the moment you go to school or you get in that school or the moment you get a new job or you get into a new relationship hope there's hope and there's promise and there's life for what can become Right and normally we dream big. We have these hopes. Now, Paul Miller talks about oftentimes in life, something happens, and we'll call that reality. And the reality line is not as as high as the hope. And this is where it's like, I'm dating, but it's, you know, there's struggles and it's not working out or, you know, I, I, got, I, got, I got married and I don't know, it's not as happy as other people seem to be or, or there, was a, you know, there was a miscarriage or I, 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 I enrolled in the school and I'm really struggling or my job is not really what I thought it was going to be and, you know, life just kind of sucks and I don't really understand the gap. Now, I'm just wondering, how many of you have been there? And I'm just wondering, how many of you are there right now? In the beginning, there was high hopes. Maybe there's a word from God. And then you just, you, what, what's going on? Anyone there? Now, there's, when this happens to people of faith, there are three common responses. All right? Here is the first one. The first one, okay, this one is the reality line. I'm going to write reality, but I realize people in the back cannot see that at all. Can you guys see that? Okay, that says reality. Okay, and this is hope right here. Now, this is what a lot of people try to do. They go, they try to lift this line, and they try to pretend that it's not here on the bottom. And you call that, you call that, um, you call that denial, and and people in denial, they will say, you know, it's not that bad. But if you're brutally honest, you're like, actually, it is pretty bad. But but you you say it's not that bad. God's good. It's not that bad. God. You kind of dismiss it. You, uh, you know, it's not that bad. God's good. Now the second response is is uh, we're gonna call that determine. Okay, determine. And this is where people say. Well, okay, right, it's not where it is, but if I work harder, like really, really, really work at it, and really just drive it, then I can get this line to go up here, and so I'm going to determine a new reality, right? And you get a lot of people, like maybe parents are like that, and so you're just totally in your kid's business, you're trying to control everything, and normally the parent doesn't go that way, right? It doesn't really work like that, and so it's not a really good thing. But what we don't realize is that we have limitations we actually can't determine a new reality, but we want to, and so we're trying, and we're trying, and we're trying, and so a lot of people go and try to do the determined route. And then here's another way that people respond, which is despair. I know maybe a thing or two about that, where you just go, reality is here, and I'm going just to just adjust my hopes to this new line right here, and life just sucks. Now, Here's Naomi, and I think she has a thing or two to teach us about this. You know, Naomi keeps it real. Naomi keeps it You know what she does? She goes back home. <laughs> Get this. And people are like, hey, isn't that Naomi? You know what she does? She goes, no, it's not. My new name is Mara. Don't you be calling me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what she says. But then you know what she also says? She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Ah, I think that's very interesting. So Naomi does not, she does not stay in denial. She's like, look, my life is, my, my, my reality is really low. And, 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 and here I am. Okay, and I'm not going to call it something it's not. My life is really hard. But at the same time, she doesn't try to pretend that she can determine her own fate and that she can control everything and by her own power, she can make things better. Does she despair? Well, I don't know, kind of. But at the same time, she has faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look in the next part, she says, The Lord, I went away empty. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back. She has not given up hope in the sovereign, infinite hand and authority of God. She holds on to that. Now, she does make some mistakes in her thinking. She does actually say that she believes that God's against her. God is not against her. God is not against you. If you look in the story, you will know God is not against Naomi. God is for Naomi. But one thing Naomi does is she keeps it real and she holds on to faith. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you had this gap in your life between hope and reality? where the hope was high, but the reality was low. You know what this gap is called? I'll tell you what this gap is called. This gap is called, is the desert with one S or two. I can't think up here. One, I got it right. It's in the desert. You know, God does some of his best work in the desert you guys remember Israel Moses led them out of slavery to the promised land and then they spent 40 years in the desert 40 years in the wilderness what am I doing here but you know God does some of his best work in the desert God writes some of his best stories in the desert Now, when you're in the desert, the desert feels like forever, and the chapters in the desert feel longer than the other chapters. But we got to learn from Naomi. She keeps it real. She's brutally honest, but she doesn't let go of her faith. She still believes in the infinite, sovereign hand of God. She believes even when it hurts to keep on believing. And so in her brutal honesty, she is waiting upon God. And that is what we are called to do, to be brutally honest and to continue to hold on to faith. Can you believe, if you're in the desert, that you are under the care of the sovereign hand of God? And so here is Naomi, and she has lost everything, right? Well, not everything. You know, uh, God has a way of, when you need it the most, of giving you a love note. God does that. This morning, I was feeling a little bit of that discouragement. And right before I came to church today, Rena showed me a picture of someone that we've been praying for a long time. Someone who was um, a big fan of Nietzsche and really getting into nihilistic thinking and nihilistic tendencies, and we have prayed and labored in prayer and labored in prayer. And then this morning, Reina goes, look at this. And she shows me a picture of this person in church. He's a great intellectual. He's sitting with a bunch of, like, frumpy old men. And he's in church. And I just cried, you know. That's God sending a love note. God does that. I wonder if there are people here who need a love note of encouragement from from the Lord. Well, God wasn't going to let us leave without some kind of encouragement for Naomi, some kind of love note. Well, she's got two daughters. She's just got two daughter-in-laws. You know, back then, it was very different from how it is now. Back then, um, mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws were not very close. It's very different now, isn't it? I'm just kidding. Um, Naomi, uh, she turns to her daughter-in-laws. I love this scene. She's being selfless. She knows that these women are young, and they have so much life, so much life ahead of them. But if they come back with her to Israel, there's not much of a future. Naomi is an honorable woman. She doesn't grasp onto her selfishness in a desperate situation. So she makes up her mind to let go for love's sake. And so she turns to her daughter in law and she says, It's time to go back. She says, in effect, I'm releasing you. Go back to your mother's house. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have to my boys and to me. No, go. She says, Go. Go, go find new husbands. And she kisses them and they weep. And they're all holding one another and they embrace. The daughters-in-law, they say, they they say no, they say no. We're going to stay with you. Now, I was told this by my my mother, that when someone offers you an extravagant gift, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever gone and had a relative with a red envelope? And uh, there's all sorts of goodies in that red envelope. And, and, and so, like a red envelope with $500. And one time, I remember my mom teaching me what to do when that, that situation happens. If that happens and they give you this extravagant gift. you are supposed to say what? You're supposed to say no. Actually, let's act this out. Someone do this to me. No, I'm kidding. Um, you're supposed to say no. And then if, and if they, they continue, well, well, here's the thing. I know this kid. And uh, a relative gave him $500, and the kid took it and started to do, like, a little happy dance, you know? And, uh, and then my mom said, stop dancing, you know? Um, <clears throat> but you're supposed to say no. And then if they offer again, what do you say? Maybe. No, you say no. And if they offer again, you say, okay, I'll take it, right? I don't know. Maybe sometimes the okay comes the second time. Maybe for some it's the fourth time. But you're eventually supposed to say okay. Now, I am not doubting the sincerity of these two women. Uh, They cried, they wept, they were attached, but I I wonder if there was some mixture of obligation in their, no, we want to stay with you, some measure. So imagine this, Naomi has a very playful way of convincing them. She goes, okay, okay, you want to stay, okay, that's good, okay. Okay, let's uh, let's play this out, let's play this out. Let's say I run into a man, you know, and... and, uh, And we fall in love, we get married, and we have boys, twin boys. Are you going to wait for those boys to become men, marry them, and then have families of your own? What are you doing with me? Go! You have your whole life ahead of you. Go, 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 go. Now, uh, this is what Orpah does. She makes a very logical decision. She does what is right for her. She weeps again, and then you know what she does? She goes. And did you know who uh, Orpa is actually? Someone named um, their daughter uh, Orpah, a famous person. Oprah Winfrey is named after Orpah. Did you know that? Except there was a misspelling in the name, and they just, went for, they just uh, stayed with the misspelling. Oprah was named after Orpah. And I think Oprah Winfrey's mom was inspired that here was a woman who seized control of her life and off she went. But now Ruth is still standing there. And I imagine the scene. Naomi goes, You again? What are you doing here? I imagine Naaman going, oh, oh, I see, I see, I see. I see what's happening. Your sister-in-law is the smart one. And you would be the dumb one. What are you doing here? Go, she's gone. You're free to go, go. Look, one day Oprah Winfrey is going to be named after your sister-in-law. Go. There's no future here with me. And Ruth says what I think is some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. She says, do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. Now these are beautiful words. I'm not going to try to take away the beauty by explaining it too much. But let me try to just point out some, a few of the beautiful points. Do you guys ever struggle with knowing what to say when a good friend is going through pain and loss? Anyone ever like bumble with your words? You're not really quite sure what to say. I feel like I'm the king of saying the wrong thing. I could tell you some of the things that I've said. There's people in the audience who could tell you some of the things that I've said, and I'm not proud of any one of them. And a person who knows this about me is my wife, and I really cherish my wife, and she's always a constant help to me. And so one day, you know, she's a professional counselor, so she's doing her thing, and she's learning her craft, and she got this book, and it's called What People Are Grieving, What People Who Are Grieving Would Like to Know, Like You to Know. She's reading this book. She thinks it's a great book. She's very subtle. She says, Andrew, take this and read it. (laughs) Very subtle. I'm like, oh, why, you know. Last month, I was telling you, I was feeling pretty discouraged about some staff transition, and we had a good friend of ours text us, just a simple text. And when Rana read it, it really touched her heart. And she shared it with me. She's like, read this. And the text read this. Very simple, very short. We're here for you guys. And we're going to ride this out together. We're here for you. We're going to ride this out together. Raina was like, Andrew, that's what you should say. Learn from her. (laughs) There are people in our community today and you're in transition and there is loss in the transition. And what we need to hear from those around us is I'll be here for you, and we're going to ride this out together. That's what we need. Maybe you're here and you need to hear those words from people around you. Maybe you're here and you have a good friend who's going through a transition. Maybe those should be your words. I'm here with you. We're going to ride this out together. And when it's said with a sincere heart, that's what we need to hear. That's what I needed to hear. You know, I think there's a second reason why Ruth's poem is so beautiful. I'm going to close with this. Ruth had a future. Naomi had none. Ruth, in saying these words, was giving Naomi her own future. She was saying, I will trade my future of health and hope And family, for your future of isolation and emptiness. These words are beautiful because it's a foreshadowing of someone else who will pretty much do the same thing. People in general, we share the same condition as Naomi. We are broken and empty and isolated. It can all be summarized in one word, we're sinful. And God sees this, and God has every right to say to us, you go your own way, and I'm going to go my way. And our way was leading to, to death and judgment and hell. But God says to us, where you go, I will go. And he sends down his son, Jesus. And he said to us, where you stay, I will stay. And Jesus lived with us. And God says to us, where you die, I will die in your place. And Jesus died on the cross to trade our brokenness and sin for his hope, future, and resurrection. Maybe you're in the desert. Maybe you're waiting on God. And as you do, just imagine the words of the Lord saying to you, I'll be here for you and we're going to ride this out together. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that at every transition of our lives, at every transition in this world, at every transition in our church, we have one who will never leave us. We have one who has said to us through the cross, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And where you die, I have died in your place. We thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for saying to us that we will ride this out together. And in you we trust.